Welcome to the 7 and 7 show where your host, Zach Ellison, extracts valuable insights from top investment experts. Seven key questions in just seven minutes. Stay on top of market trends, expand your investment knowledge, and get tips from the best in the business. Brought to you by Applied Real Intelligence, ARI, the leader in venture debt financing. www.arivc.com. Let's grow! Hi, everybody. Welcome to the 7 and 7 show. I'm your host, Zach Ellison. And today I have with me one of the best strategists in the world, Art Hogan, who is the chief market strategist at B. Riley Wealth. Um, so with that, Art, I'd love to hear about your background and how you got here. Sure thing. Yeah. So I uh, started in the business uh, 30 some odd years ago and, and started working at uh, Dean Witter, which turned into Morgan Stanley. Um, shifted gears a bit and moved to a company called Jeffries and stayed there for about a decade and uh, shifted my focus from what I, I was running sales and trading um, at Morgan Stanley and, and uh, moved into research and really found a passion for that at a, at a point in time uh, in my career where it was probably the right thing to do. Worked there for a bit, uh, got hired away at Lazard Capital Markets. And then since Lazard Capital Markets, I've been at uh, B. Riley uh, Wealth or one of its affiliates for the last eight years. So the career has sort of spanned from starting in the sales and trading distribution side of things and then uh, really developing research product and then helping financial advisors understand what those products mean and how to use them. So what are some of the key investment principles that you live by and that you help educate a lot of these advisors on? I think the biggest thing to focus on really is threefold. I think that the, the, my most important is to never do anything because you're scared, right? And, and that's where the biggest mistakes come in. And, and uh, there's been plenty of things to be scared about over the last couple of years. And, and certainly there's plenty of things to overreact to. What I try to do is help separate a lot of the noise that we all hear all day long with a 24-hour news cycle and social media and all sorts of other inputs and, and really talk about what's news and how that might affect the economy, earnings, and, and your investments. So when I think about it in that fashion, I spend a lot of my time helping people feel less concerned about some of the disaster du jours that are going to be happening, whether it's going to be either the China reopening story or the you know the quantitative tightening or the Fed needing to the Treasury needing to refill its coffers post the getting the debt ceiling raised. And, and lo and behold, most of those things, if you've made a list of everything that people have been concerned about this year, most of them haven't come to fruition. So sometimes it's just, it's important to sort of think about things in proper context. The second thing is never trying to time the market. I think that's the biggest mistake investors make. And so I think about, you know, you know, thinking about sensible rebalancing versus trying to time things. And I think that the, and there's only been one year in uh, my career where a diversified portfolio hasn't helped you. And that was last year. And was last year for the first time. And, and since I've been doing this, nothing worked, right? The fixed income was down and equities were down. That's likely not going to repeat itself. So talking about diversification, talking about compounding and talking about not trying to time things and getting spooked into or out of things for the wrong reasons. So this brings up a, a question that I think about a lot, which is how do you think about entering and exiting investments? Because obviously the long term is the right horizon to be thinking about. And investors shouldn't make emotionally based decisions because that usually leads to suboptimal outcomes. But there does need to be some, some system or some process around entering and exiting because you don't want to always be fully invested in the market, I don't think. I mean, there should be times where you say, hey, I really don't like the prospects here. I'm going to dial back or I'm going to reallocate. So how do you think about entering and exiting investments 
but also how do you think about uh, rebalancing and shifting between different investments? Yeah, you just answered the, the question right there. I think rebalancing is the most important piece. So that's, for example, let's, let's look at a 60-40 portfolio. In that mix, you're always going to have some percentage of that in cash for opportunities. But let's just take the typical portfolio. Let's focus on that equity side for the first part and say, I'm going to set up a barbell strategy. And that does exactly that. It takes the emotion out of it. How does it do that? You say, okay, on one side of this barbell, for instance, what we're looking at now is things that have underperformed. So we like healthcare and energy and staples right now. And on the other side of that is going to be some of that sort of well-defined technology companies that are that most around their business don't have to access bank lending, uh, don't have to access capital markets, defendable cash flows, et cetera. But if you rebalance that barbell, so you don't get out of whack, you're not oversaturated with the mega cap technology companies, and you do that, let's say, on a quarterly basis, you're actually forced to sell some of your winners. And I think that's a very healthy process. It also gives you the, the ability to dollar cost average into some of your losers, keeping that barbell approach. So if you were to look at that approach over the course of the last three years, that barbell approach has outperformed the S&P 500 because it takes the emotion out and it forces you to take profits on things that are doing well, but you're still exposed to them. I think that's important. The other piece of the puzzle is to not always have the same things on both sides of your barbell. Think about why did I, why did I think Healthcare and energy and staples were the right idea. Well, they're defensive, right? They're steady. Uh, <clears throat> they likely do well as the economy starts to uh, do better. But if, if that changes in your opinion, you might want to you know, shift what's on one side of that. So it's basically having value on one side, growth on the other, and keeping it balanced. But times change, right? So if we had started the barbell approach 20 years ago, you know, our growth stocks would be things like AT&T and Xerox and General Motors and Exxon, right? And obviously, you need to change with the times to make sure you're updating that. But that doesn't mean you want to change it every day or every week or every month. But it's taking that assessment every time you rebalance and say, "Am I? In, do I have the right things on either side of this barbell? And it keeps you current with, with what those growth opportunities and those value opportunities should be. I think that's the best way to take the emotion out of it. If you're, if this side has gotten too large and it's larger than 50%, you're going to trim some of that at the end of the quarter and you're going to put that money on the other side. So do you typically think quarterly is the best timing for rebalancing or should it be more frequent? Well, it, it, it certainly depends. I would say it depends on your risk tolerance, um, how long you have uh, before you do use this money. So if you're a very long-term investor, I certainly think you can actually have that rebalance more frequently. And, but I think quarterly takes a lot of the noise out of it, right? So you're not just saying, oh, we had a terrible march because the regional banks imploded and, and uh, you know, I'm going to jump and make a decision in March. It's, but if it's at the end of the quarter, you're making adjustments on a regular basis. So if you get much more than quarterly, I think it just adds a lot of volatility and noise to that. And it likely you know, sort of pulls back on what the transaction cost would be as well. So when you do that rebalancing, how do you think about what you should sell and what you should buy each quarter? And especially when there's new investments that haven't you know, been around for as long as some of the others, you know, whether it's uh, something that's tied to innovation, for instance, how would you think about adding that? And I guess what I'm getting at here is how do you think about strategic asset allocation, which is kind of longer term versus tactical? And then how do you also account for paradigm shifts or 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 new investment opportunities that didn't exist when you originally crafted that you know, investment policy statement? Yeah, it's such a great question. So I'll give you a perfect example of that. Now, artificial intelligence, while it sounds like it's brand new, it, it's something that companies have been working on for multiple multiples of years. But as it started to throw itself into the fore at the beginning of this year, let's say, um, 
you want to step back and say, okay, in any sort of new paradigm, who is who's likely to be the early beneficiaries of that? And to me, I always think about the gold rush. And then who was who, who you know who did best in the gold rush? And that was really the, the folks that sold the picks and the shovels and the pans, right? And then it, you didn't have to take too 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 far of a leap to say, well, what's the one thing that everyone that wants to have an AI strategy, what do they need? They need that computing power. Where does that come from? NVIDIA. So you look at it in video and say, okay, that wasn't on the side of the barbell for a period of time, but now it is. And why is it? Because regardless of who the winners are going to be at the end of the day, at least in the here and now, they're going to need an NVIDIA for compute power, right? So and I think that the, that has proven to be true. And then you have to take that other step and say, shouldn't I start looking for some of these hot AI IPOs and everyone's going to come out and say, I've got an AI strategy. That's where you have to be very careful. So I think in the early stages of this, you want to look at the income, incumbent companies that can actually afford this strategy. It's very expensive to actually do have an AI strategy for yourself. To, and, and so looking at some of the incumbent companies, it also makes sense that an Alphabet and a Microsoft are going to be the early winners of this. But the importance of this is, even if you were to look at that at the beginning of the year and say, okay, here are my winners. By the end of the first quarter and certainly by the end of the second quarter, you trim some of those profits because obviously... The exuberance has has lifted some of these names, and 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 at some point in time, those multiples won't be sustainable, right? And 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 so I think that's where the rebalancing comes in. But that's how you get into the what's new. But where you have to be careful is what's new isn't always what's great. We've seen so many you know new new things, whether it was biotechs in the eighties, dot com in the in the nineties. 3D printing, we all remember, was going to take over the world. And, and, and there was a host of names that had magnificent you know, climbs and, and significant falls along the way. So it's, the fact that you're rebalancing and, and, and taking some profits while this is going on, but still having exposure to this new paradigm, I think makes a great deal of sense. But there's a difference between you know, jumping you know, all in on this and having it be part of your portfolio. So there's plenty of things that can go wrong here. We've seen that in all sorts of new things over the course of the last three years. Just look at crypto, right? So you know, so there's going to be opportunities here at the end of the day. We certainly think in the early stages, it's best to play the incumbents and, and then play with the provider of the picks and shovels. This is a good segue into my next question, which deals with risks. Because you've identified that there's these opportunities, but the reality is that when there's these paradigm shifts and there's these really attractive new opportunities, a lot of these investments will wind up being losers and in many cases, zeros. I mean, you look at what happened with the dot-com boom in, in the late 90s and how that ended. And obviously the internet was here to stay and it transformed the world. But as an investor, most investors lost money during that period because a lot of those investments that had dot-com after their name, right. zero. And that's what we're going to see with AI unequivocally. Um, I'll put my reputation on that right now. AI is here to stay. It's going to completely transform the world. But the majority of investments that I that are being made today are going to wind up being zeros because people, you know, are, are investing in things they don't understand. They're not necessarily investing in the incumbents. They're investing in you know the hot new thing. And you know, I see it every day in my position as a you know, venture debt provider. Everybody now is pitching us on a company. Uh, that has some AI component and it's most of it's bullshit to be quite frank, right? right. Most of them have no idea what AI is or, or what, what the difference between you know, different 
forms of AI are or how it differs from machine learning, and they don't have any expertise in it. So the first thing I do is, you know, I, I basically dig into their AI chops and nine times out of 10, they have none. And then I just, you know, kick them to the curb. But, you know, most people don't have that ability to really dig in deep and see what's true and what's not. So this brings me to the question of uh, risks and, and mistakes that investors make. And over your career, you know, spanning you know, over 30 years, you've seen a lot of people make mistakes and you've learned a lot from those mistakes. What are the biggest mistakes that you've seen people make and how do how do you learn from those? And then how do you mitigate risks as an investor? Right. So I think you really hit it on the head there. And I think that one of the things, luckily, in the, in the stage we're at, the uh, excitement over AI is that, that differentiates from what we went through in .com is that we haven't had that flood of IPOs yet. That's where it gets very dangerous, where everything goes up. You connect, you know, put AI in your name, come public. You have a massive, you know, 50% upside in your, in your opening. Everyone craves that. You get FOMO. You start a payment. So having worked at Morgan Stanley during that time frame, we were just as guilty as anyone of bringing companies public because they had a website or they were measuring themselves in clicks and eyeballs, et cetera. But, you know, understanding that there was, you know, close to 900 companies that came public between 1996 and 2000, there literally are only about five, less than a handful that still remain and made it through to where the internet changed our lives. Right? That's crazy. Wait, so say that stat again, because that, that I think is something people need to, to know. 73 companies went public from 96 to 2000. All of them hugely successful. All of them exciting. And every you know, you can, the, the multiples a day of companies coming out, and, and you just couldn't get enough of them. And they were all exploding in the, you know, on their opening prints. And they were all going to change the world. But but guess what? There's a handful that, are, that still exist today, whether... They completely went out of business. Um, CMGI is a great example of an internet incubator. Um, the Patriot Stadium was, was going to be named after CMGI. It was one of the hottest stocks around. They were basically, in, they had a lot of internet properties that they were incubating. And, and, and you know, talk about a stock that went from $20 on its IPO to $500 back down to zero. And, and they're not alone. It, it, was a, it was a irrational exuberant time, as Alan Greenspan said. We're not at that stage yet because capital markets have been virtually closed. We just haven't seen deals for AI, pure AI plays. That's where it gets dangerous for investors. And how do you how do you mitigate that risk? Well, the good news is if you're a retail investor, you're not going to get into any of these hot IPOs. That's kind of a self-governing thing. It's just if they're going to be that hot, the institutional pots are going to get them all. The second thing is not chasing anything until we find out who the winners and losers are going to be. And it's going to be a while. So unless you can describe what a company's doing, you can describe to me like I'm a fifth grader what a company's doing and what part of the artificial intelligence revolution it's going to play, I would warn you against investing it. We can certainly say right now what Google's doing with it and what Microsoft is doing with it and how NVIDIA is helping. Away from that, it's very hard for the average person on the street that you'll meet at a barbecue or a cocktail party or at Home Depot to explain to you what part of that puzzle this new company is going to, and, and if that's the case, you know, I would warn people not to invest. If you understand, you know, your brother-in-law told you about this and you think it's going to be great, explain it to me like I'm the fifth grade. If you can't, then you shouldn't be investing in it. Well, that was the same methodology I used when it came to crypto in the last couple of years. And whether or not crypto you know, has value going forward remains to be seen. But I think we can all agree that the majority of investments aren't going to be worth much, right? So even if there are a couple of winners, most people that invested in crypto are going to wind up you know, losing. And it's for the same reason that most people that invested in, in IPOs of um, dot-com companies in the late 90s also lost money. 
Right. Tell, I, tell me one more time. That's a perfect thought. I think when you think about crypto, it's a good analog to .com. It's a yeah. new technology blockchain versus the new technology of the internet. You know, literally hundreds of coins being minted. And there's there's really going to be two incumbents likely at the end of the day. And then we likely know who they are right now. It's likely Bitcoin and Ethereum. And the rest will fall by the wayside like pets.com did. Agreed. And, and this, is, you know, this is something I think a lot of people don't realize. And it, it comes back to bite them in time. So... So how should investors be thinking about playing AI then? Should they just invest in the larger incumbents that have an AI edge like Microsoft or Google? Yeah, I would. I certainly think that, you know, the, the rational approach in the early stages is the picks and shovels and the incumbents. And then other opportunities will start to show themselves. You know, I'm sure Apple and Amazon and some of the other mega cap technology companies are going to present to us at some point in time a credible business opportunity that incorporates artificial intelligence. I don't think you need to be in a hurry to be chasing anything new necessarily here because it's going to take a while to play out. Think about it like this. We, the internet was sort of had publicly traded companies in 95 and 96. It wasn't in, well into 2000, to call it 2005, that there was mass adoption of using the internet. So, you know, then we all got dial up service and we, you know, we're, we started using email and then, you know, online commerce took off and that was the next leg of that journey. But I think the same thing is, you know, likely the time frame will be compressed more, but the actual commercial opportunity for artificial intelligence isn't August of this year. It's over the next couple of years and that'll start to present itself. I think that's important not to say I need to get in now because this is going to explode before Christmas. You know, another another example, not quite as big as those that we've talked about, but mobile phones, right? There are, you know, BlackBerry is is nothing. Apple has been successful. But if you look at all the manufacturers of cell phones, there's really just been one winner. Maybe, you know, maybe a couple that have done okay. But the reality is it's basically just been Apple and everybody else has kind of fallen by the wayside. And so if you were investing in BlackBerry, you know, 15 years ago, You'd have a big donut, and if you, you know, and you wouldn't, you wouldn't have you know, known any better. So it's I, I, it's been true through every innovation, right? When you think about this, there was a point in time where we had close to a hundred car companies in the United States. The invention of the automobile started. We had all these startup car companies. Lo and behold, you know, we have three now, right? And, and then the same thing would be true. You know, I would say the same thing is true for cell phones. The same thing is true for airlines. I think when you look at any new innovation that is so new and exciting that's going to change our lives. You get this. You get this massive influx of new players, and at the end of the day, the best ones are going to win. We saw that in the dot com. We certainly are going to see it in artificial intelligence, and I think that's going to whatever the next new thing is going to be. That'll be true too. So it's better to not jump in with both feet. Have a logical, explainable rationale for why you want to invest in this new technology, and be able to defend it to me like I'm in the fifth grade. I think that's the best way to describe it. It's like tell me what their revenue opportunity is, and if you can describe that to me. I think that's terrific. If you can't, probably not time to make that investment. Yeah, it goes back to the advice that Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and many of the great investors have given over the years, which is to invest in companies that you know and understand and, and whose business model you like, but you actually you know, deeply understand it. And right. if you don't understand the company and how it makes money, you probably should not be investing. Yeah, I think that's extremely correct. And that, that's always going to be true. It's been true for the last 30 years. It will be true for the next 30 years. The problem with any sort of new, exciting, innovative um, revolution is that there's all there's always going to be some bad actors who want to chase that and hope that they can transform that chasing that and raising of capital into a business. And it's usually not the way to go about it. You don't raise money and then hope to have a business model. 
it's a much better idea to have a business model and then hope to raise capital and show that you're going to be part of this revenue stream. So transitioning a little bit from this topic, but related to it is how do you think about alternative investments as part of a, a successful portfolio? And, and for those that are listening, alternative investments are essentially anything that are not stocks or bonds. So that could be real estate, private equity, private credit, venture capital, uh, venture debt, and a whole slew of other niche strategies. So Art, what's what's your thinking around alts and how is that? how are alts really making their way into the high net worth space? Because historically it's been more of an institutional you know, product and now it's starting to become uh, much more accessible. So how do you think about you know, A, you know, how this helps portfolios and B, how do you get access and the right type of access for uh, smaller clients? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. So the great news about alts is that they've really been democratized over the course of the last 10 years. And what do I mean by that? You're right, it used to be just institutions that were afforded access to some of the alternative investments. I think you touched a lot, a lot of those. And over the course of the last call it, decade or so, there have been funds that have been raised that actually allow retail investors. And the good news about most of that is you have to do a significant amount of due diligence to actually allow it to be on your platform. So whether it's access to things like fine art, which have gotten very popular, things like private equity, venture capital, venture debt, all of those things that are important that the retail investor really never had any access to before, they do now. What does that do? That's just another further uh, buffer to your portfolio. It helps you uh, diversify. And it certainly helps you sort of ride out some storms, but it also gives you access at some point in time to something, to your point, that's not a stock or a bond. What other things should I be thinking about? It's easy for, you know, for everyone to say, well, I've got access to real estate because I own my home. That's not really true. And it's not, a, it's not, an, it's not an income producing asset for you. So access to real estate as an alternative makes a great deal of sense. So what I love about Bolts is they've been brought down to the level of the common man, right? We have access as, as retail investors. What I love about the fact that we're a very regulated industry is we have to do our due diligence to make sure these things are appropriate for the clients that we're talking to them about. And of late, that has been, has been the, the, the window just barely opened over the course of the last five years to where the opportunities have gotten large. And I think they're a very important part of a diversified portfolio. Are there any alts that you, um, that you like in particular? And, and I also have to ask about what, you know, what your thoughts are around venture capital and venture debt. And when we spoke in person at the B Riley Investment Conference a couple of months back, you had some interesting views based on takeaways you had speaking with VCs and, and some portfolio companies. Uh, and so I'd, I'd like to hear about you know, what those conversations led to, because essentially it sounded like you had an, a bit of an epiphany uh, after after talking to some of the VCs. Yeah, I really did. And, and the epiphany goes something like this. Venture capital, obviously, startup funding. Um, startups tend to need more funding as they go along, right? As they progress through their building out their businesses. And that's all well and good when the venture capital market is open. But when you throw a monkey wrench into that like you did last year and certainly um, took a bigger uh, bump in the road when Silicon Valley Bank, one of the major players in the venture community, went under the waves. And all of a sudden, there's a dislocation. But I think there was already a dislocation because valuations had come down. And venture capital is that raised capital, uh, venture, venture companies that raised capital don't want to go back to their same investors and say, we need to raise more capital, but our valuations can be lower. I know we raised, you know, this much at a billion dollar valuation, 
but now we need to raise this much more. And oh, by the way, now we're at 600 million. It's just, it's not endearing. No one wants to do, it's called a down round. No one wants to do a down round of capital raising. And that really jams up both on the venture side, the private equity side, and certainly in capital markets. Nobody wants to do an IPO and a down round, right? So how do you fill that gap? Because there's capital needs. And that's where venture debt, I think, is an amazing new opportunity. So you've got these businessmen that need more capital. And all of their capital has been has been raised on the capital side and, and virtually none of it on the debt side. So you have the ability to raise venture debt. Who was the biggest player in that? Oddly enough, it was Silicon Valley Bank. Removed them from that picture, and that opens this huge gap of need for these venture capital companies to find other sources of venture debt, which I think is extremely important. You can't get your original investors to do a down round. Let's put some debt on the balance sheet to continue operations until valuations start going up. You have your more successful in front of your company and you have access to other capital. So I think that the major players there, or there's a void from the major players there that needs to be filled by others, right? And, and we're already starting to see that, you know, the, the announcements over the course of the last month or so of other people wanting to get into the venture debt. I think proves the thesis that there's that that hold uh, was blown wide open on March 10th um, by the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. An exciting new opportunity, and it avoids that down round that none of these guys are willing to do at this juncture. Yeah, I think you, you said that very very well in the sense that there's there's a fundamental need for this type of capital, and in many respects, you know, kind of reminds me of what happened in the early 80s when when Michael Milken and Howard Marks popularized what's called junk bonds. Now it's called high yield. But back then there was this need from non-investment grade borrowers, you know, larger corporates to you know access the debt market. And it didn't really exist. Back then you kind of had to be an investment grade borrower. Otherwise you weren't going to get capital. And, and so ultimately that product grew to be what it is today because it was driven by fundamental need. Right. Mm -hmm. And the innovation really was on the part of, of, Marks and, and Milk and, and, and saying, hey, we can figure out a way to facilitate this and get capital to these companies that previously weren't getting it. And what I see in venture debt is very similar in the sense that there is a fundamental need for debt capital from startups, from the most successful startups, in fact. And there's nobody that's really providing it in the size that that is needed. I mean, there's about a dozen lenders in the space in the US that I would call institutional quality that are um, you know, out there making venture debt loans. And so the market's you know, wide open and the demand for capital is significantly greater than the supply, right? So whenever I talk to investors uh, on my show, for instance, on the 7 and 7 show, one of the things I always talk about is you know, how they identify attractive investment opportunities. Right. Probably the number one way to do that is just look for products where there's more demand for it than there is supply. I mean, it's super, super simple. It's economics 101. Because if there's more demand than there is supply, it's going to drive the price up over time, right? In other words, your returns are going to be higher if you're providing something that is scarce, in this case, capital to, to these startups. So I think you know, Silicon Valley Bank going down was a big catalyst, and it's kind of poured gasoline on the fire. But this opportunity was there before, and now it's just becoming uh, more visible um, which is good in some ways. Um, for us, at least, it's it's nice when BlackRock went out last month and they bought one of the biggest venture lenders in Europe who will not be competing with us, but it you know it validates this, this product completely. And when you've got BlackRock putting out a press release saying, hey, we bought Creos because they, they're, they're offering this differentiated, unique, you know, exclusive access that has low correlation to other investments, 
you know, and high risk adjusted returns, that basically, you know, wins the argument. I don't need to argue this point anymore with investors when, when they're like, oh, I don't believe venture debt it is as good as you say it is. I'm like, I don't really care what you think because BlackRock agrees with me. Oh, and by the way, so does Oak Tree and Blackstone. So right. it's closed. <laughs> so that's been very nice. <laughs> I think the point that you bring up, and I think that's true, right? It's the, it's, the, it's the proof of concept when you have players of that magnitude stepping in and seeing that gap, right? And, and the gap has been, to your point, the gap has been here for a while, right? The, the, that not wanting to do a down round has, has, has been going on for quite some time. Silicon Valley Bank didn't invent that. They just highlighted it even more. And, and, and clearly, some of those valuations in venture companies were one of the reasons that Silicon Valley Bank had so many withdrawals. So it was sort of a, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy. But I think you brought up a very important point, too. When you look at this, it's not just demand, but it's demand for quality companies. You have to believe in the businesses that they're building to actually take that risk, that, that you can get that high uh, risk-adjusted return to make sure that there's going to be something at the end of that for, for the, uh, the folks that are taking on that risk. Yeah, and you know, one of the big misconceptions that I hear quite a bit is that there's binary risk in venture debt. And right. people are conflating venture debt with early stage venture equity in terms of the risk and the return, which is kind of silly. Would you compare a senior secured loan to you know, early stage, you know, small cap and you know, publicly traded stock? Absolutely not. They're very different risk characteristics. And same with venture debt versus venture equity. And one of the ways that I like to describe venture debt relative to venture equity is the following. Imagine you go to a horse race and you, know, you have to bet on horses. Equity investors are essentially betting on horses they've never seen run. So VCs are saying, hey, we're really early. We've never seen this horse run. We don't even know if the jockey's any good, really. But we're just going to bet on a bunch of these horses. And hopefully a couple of them will win and win big. And others will you know, not even race. Others will break their legs in the race. You know, others <laughs> won't finish for other reasons. Um, that's very different from venture debt. The venture lender is going to that race saying, I'm going to bet on the horses when the race is 80% run. Right. So not only have I seen them run, I already know who's kind of in the lead. And I might not always know who's going to win, but I have a very good shot of, of determining who's going to win, place, or show. And I brought this up at a conference I was at, and I was speaking on a panel, and one of the other panelists said, hey, all you need is for the horse not to die. <laughs> to make money, right? Because I, <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's kind of that's the difference. And you won't necessarily have the opportunity to have a hundred x return on a venture debt investment, but you're getting a, you know fifteen to twenty percent cash yield. Plus, you've got equity kickers through uh, warrants on all these deals, which gives you that exposure over the longer term. So if the company does happen to to be a big winner, you're going to participate in that meaningfully, and you're so you've got this upside skew. But you don't have the downside skew. Right. And the other thing I always, you know, like to explain to people is that these are short duration senior secured loans to the best VC backed companies in the world. So these, this is not you know some small business and they haven't made a buck yet. This is you know companies that are backed by the Sequoias and Andreessen Horowitzes and Kleiner Perkinses of the world, where they're already doing you know, twenty or thirty or forty million a year in revenue, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to get to you know many multiples of that. And right. that's a very different risk proposition than you know other types of small business loans. Right. So, yeah. Quick question to you: What you know in terms of the uh, in, environment changing, what gets venture capital to start going again? When do companies start saying, "Okay, I'm biting the bullet and doing that down round"? Is it, do we get to a place is that they have to throw up their hands and say, "We've taken on too much debt," and or 
you know, we're taking on new investors and, and we're doing a, you know, another round at a lower valuation. Have you seen some of both of that? Yeah. And that's a great question. And the answer is when they start to run low on cash, then it's mm-hmm. not really in their control anymore. They either have to raise money at any price or they're going to go out of business. Right. And for early stage companies in particular, you know, cash is king. And the number one reason early stage companies fail is they run out of cash. And most funding cycles for early stage companies are you know, two to three years. In other words, they're coming back every two to three years to the market to raise external capital to fund their growth. And so if you look at the funding cycle over the last three years, 2021 was a record year. It was a blowout year. And to, to put it in concrete terms, if you look at the amount of venture equity that was invested in 2020, it was about 160 billion, which was an all-time record. So you have an all-time record of 160 in 2020. The next year it went to 345 billion. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. Imagine, you know, there's a baseball player who hits, you know, 70 home runs and the next year somebody hits 150. (laughs) (laughs) They're definitely on steroids, just like the economy was. Uh, So, and then in 2022, that number was about 240 billion. So you've just had a massive amount of money going to these um, VC-backed companies over the last three years, roughly 750 billion in aggregate. Now on the debt side, there was about 100 billion deployed during that three-year period. So you had 750 billion in equity, 100 billion in debt, 850 billion total over three years. Well, guess what? Now all those companies are gonna need to start to come back to the market. So all the companies that funded in in 2021 are gonna be coming back to market next year. And the, those that funded in 2022 are going to be coming back to market you know, next year and in 2025 and, and somewhat in 2026. So there's there's a massive amount of capital um, that's or a massive amount of demand for capital that's going to really hit next year and the year after. And that's what's going to drive companies to have to do rounds at any price. Uh, right. The other thing I'll mention, too, is that because this is a private markets product, there is a lag in marking down investments. It's not like the stock market where you see it in real time. And so there's been you know, a lot of folks who have, I would say, undermarked their their book. They haven't marked it down as much as they should have. Right. And, and so there's they're, they're basically causing the smoothing effect. And that really hasn't fully filtered through. And I think that'll take a couple more quarters. But at some point, you can't really cook the books anymore as a VC. You've got to write down the company to what it's really worth. And I think most of the companies that were funded in 2020 through 22 are going to wind up being down um, anywhere from you know 50 to 90 percent. The majority are. Right. I mean, it's just it's all it's the reality is if you look at secondary markets and where um, you know trades are taking place, most of the trades are taking place at valuations that are 60 percent lower, 40 to 60 percent lower than um, than last year and the year before. And I would say that there's not even a strong bid at those prices. In right. other words, there's opportunities to buy in at you know, 50% of the valuation of 18 months ago, and there's nobody wants to do it, which means yeah. that the prices are going to have to fall further. So to answer your question in succinct terms, I think when we see the valuations fully reflect reality, which mm-hmm. will happen over the next six to 12 months, and when we see this demand for capital really surge in 2024 and 25, that's when you're going to see the VC market pick up again. Because the reality is then those with capital are going to be seen eye to eye with those that need capital. Because right now the founders want their valuations to be much higher. And the funders, the VCs are saying, we're not going to fund at 
the price that you wanted. That's silly. And so there, that's why transactions aren't taking place. It's like a, the bid and the ask aren't even close, right? right? In trading talk, right? And right. so eventually that's going to come together. And I think that'll probably be you know, sometime next year, which I also think will be a banner year for venture debt, because as these equity deals start to print again, these companies will be looking for additional capital yeah, that's cheaper and less dilutive than equity capital. And so they'll sure. be coming to the lenders to basically you know, tack on capital to their equity raises. Right. Because it works. Like, oh, go ahead, Art. When you think about that ratio, we're talking about the last three years and 700 billion and 750 billion um, in equity, venture equity, and uh, 100 billion ish in, in venture debt. Is that about right, you think? You know, in, in terms of I'm a venture company, what should the ratio of debt to equity be that I do when I'm doing a raise? A great question. So historically, the amount of venture debt relative to venture equity over the last, you know, call it 10 to 15 years has been about 10% plus or minus. So, you know, that, you know, that's not a lot of venture debt. If you think about it, you know, hundred million or excuse me, hundred billion in equity would be, you know, 10 billion in, in debt. So that's an aggregate across the U S on a, on a company specific basis. Most lenders want to keep the loan to enterprise value below 20%. Mm -hmm. And most of the better lenders are keeping that ratio around 10%. And quite frankly, the deals that we are looking at at ARI right now that we're intending to, you know, to execute on over the next you know, three to 12 months have LTVs in the single digits. So you take a company that's worth $100 million, conservative valuation, not a VC valuation, but our valuation based on, on um, you know, relatively conservative metrics and multiples, Take a company that's worth 100 million, that loan size would probably be 10 million or less. Okay. Right. And the way it works mechanically is that the debt comes after the equity raise. So, another common uh, misconception with venture debt is that people think that companies that need capital that are struggling can go get a loan. That's absolutely unequivocally not how it works. The way it works is the top 10 or 20% of companies that have raised equity capital effectively are then able to tap into the debt capital. It's, it's the equity raise that de-risks us as the lender. So what you'll often see is company wants to raise, let's say $50 million total. They'll go do a $40 million equity round and then they'll do 10 million in debt. So they get their 50 million, but they've saved themselves that 10 million in, in dilution and right. greatly reduced it. Because the lender of course does have equity warrants, but you know, it says, relatively small percentage. So the company is happy because debt capital is cheaper. So their mm -hmm. weighted average cost of capital is reduced. And more, most importantly, I would say the founders are really excited because now they're keeping more of the companies they've built, right? right. They're saying, great, now, now when this thing does IPO or we get acquired, we're going to have a larger ownership stake, which ultimately is what they're incentivized to do. Right. They, they're not there to make the VCs money. They're there to make themselves money. Right. And, okay. and so, um, that that's where I think people go wrong is they think, oh, venture debt's risky. It's, no, it's not. It's actually got the best risk-adjusted returns of any private market asset over the last 20 years because you're lending to the winners that are already very, very successful. They've gone through deep due diligence with the best VCs on the planet. They've got some game-changing you know, technology in many cases. They've got incredible traction. They're, they've real revenue, right? Oftentimes they're you know, close to profitability or, or going to be very profitable um, in the short term um, and the longer term, of course. And so it's 
it's not this binary risk that people think it is. It's it's really just a, it's a complement to the equity financing, and it's only provided to the best companies out there. Right. So you don't have a concern necessarily. So let's say hypothetically um, that that typical funding round is going to kick in in twenty four, right? And founders and the venture capital companies are going to start to get closer on that bid and offer spread. And then we're going to see some down rounds. That doesn't matter to you um, because there's also going to be a deck component to that. Um, so if, we, if a company, you know, company XYZ does a down round, the founder's willing to take that price, gets diluted, they're still going to have a desire to have that sort of 10% debt on top of that to get the capital needs taken care of. In fact, they're going to be more incentivized to utilize debt because they're raising equity capital at a lower valuation, which means inherently it's much more expensive. Right? Right. The lower the valuation, the more expensive the cost of capital. So there's going to be a, a very strong desire from founders to utilize as much debt as they can, you know, within reason. Sure. You don't want to over lever a company, of course, but most founders are, are going to be doing uh, rounds that are at lower valuations. And so they're going to be highly incentivized to, to utilize debt to uh, to decrease that cost of capital. Also, you know, raising money at a lower valuation means you're inherently selling more equity. So you want to do as much debt as you can. So I, I think you know next year should be a, a banner year for venture lenders in general, because there's going to be a lot of deals taking place, I think. Um, and not only are we going to you know, have more demand for the product, but given the fact that we're going to have equity warrants on all these deals, we're getting the equity warrants on better terms also, because we're getting the equity warrants at, at a lower company valuation. And we can also negotiate for much lower strike prices. Right. So think of, you know, for those that don't really know what an equity warrant is, it's essentially a call option or the right to buy stock in the company. But you need to you know, pay to exercise that option. And in the past, the strike price or the, the, the cost of exercising that option would often be the price of the last round of, of equity capital. Right, last stock price. Um, now, because these companies need capital and don't really have as much negotiating power, they're they're willing to do deals where the strike price is a penny, meaning the lender can can buy stock in that company for a penny per share. And so, ultimately, I think this is going to set up venture lenders for big returns in the next couple of years because we'll be earning an attractive income. You know, fifteen to twenty percent on the debt side, plus the equity warrants will produce higher returns than they have historically because we're getting them at lower valuations with lower strike prices. So why are, that's why we're seeing a rush of companies announcing that they'd like to enter this market. Yeah, I mean that's I mean this, this is why you're seeing you know BlackRock, Blackstone, um, Oak Tree. They're all you know they're all in the space either as LPs, limited partners in, in funds, or doing direct investments with their own capital or in BlackRock's case, you know, buying Creos. And, you know, for us, that's great because it validates the product, but they're not directly competing with us because they're doing much bigger deals in you know, different parts of the market. You know, we're not in Europe, so right. I, you know, I'm not really concerned about that. And, you know, Blackstone, for instance, announced last year that they're putting $2 billion of their own capital to work in tech lending, which includes you know, venture debt. And um, ultimately, those are going to be bigger deals, you know. 50, 100, 150 million dollar deals where we're really targeting, you know, 10 to 25 million dollar deals. So um, very, very different parts of the market. And how would you differentiate um, your fund from uh, a typical what, you know, what we know is BBC uh, that seems to do some of this as well? Yeah. So there's um, for those that are listening, there's there's publicly traded companies that actually 
make venture loans. And there's five publicly traded NASDAQ traded business development companies known as BDCs that specialize in venture debt. So if you want to buy a public stock that's liquid, you can go out and get this venture debt exposure through these five companies. Now, that also brings with it risks because they're publicly traded. They also have market beta, right? And so saw in um, 2020 when COVID hit, the market sold off initially before we got that big liquidity injection. And what happened was the BDCs that specialized in venture debt, along with everyone else, all went down quite a bit because they have relatively high beta. So for instance, there were BDCs that were down 70% when COVID first hit because they have a beta of approximately 1.8, right? None of the underlying loans actually ever got hit and they all produced excellent returns. But because they were a publicly traded vehicle, and people were just selling everything indiscriminately and higher beta stocks were going to be you know, underperformers, they were, they produced you know, a terrible short-term return. Um, I'll tell you, a lot of smart people I know in the space loaded up on those BDCs on the sell-off and killed it. They absolutely had banner returns in the last couple of years because they bought at a, a huge discount. But that's a big risk though, when you think about, you know, if you're an allocator, or you're an advisor and you put your client into venture debt through the public BDCs, and then there's a sell-off, you know, the recession hits and, and the market's down, you know, 30 or 40%, these BDCs are going to underperform and be down even more. And you're not going to look too smart when you've put you know, 100, 100 units of capital into an investment and you're going back to your, your client, you know, a month later saying, hey, that's worth 30 cents on the dollar now. Oh, but don't worry, it'll be fine in the long run. Like that doesn't cut it. That's how you get fired. And that's why I think private structures are a much better vehicle for venture debt. Because these are companies that don't have a lot of, um, on an individual loan basis, they don't have a lot of systemic or macro risk. They're really, it's really a lot of idiosyncratic risk. In other words, what happens day to day in the stock market is not going to affect a loan that we made to a venture-backed tech company, right? Sure. Short term. You know, there's longer term tie-ins, of course, related to the funding cycle that we've talked about. But the reality is these are great portfolio diversifiers because they've got very, very low correlation over the short and intermediate horizons. And you know, a lot of people um, you know, really like venture debt for that reason, but they like it in the private structure because we can actually mark our books appropriately and it's not you know the voting machine of of the public markets yeah and then help help us dispel a myth about venture capital in general venture capital companies aren't always tech companies right there's there's a broad distribution of, of multiple sectors that are at that stage of their development that take on venture capital and, and, and debt correct yeah there's there's typically a, a tech focus when it comes to venture back companies, because venture back VCs are looking for companies that have a lot of scalability and, and, and big upside. And you won't really have that unless it's got a tech component in most cases, but it need not be software. You know, there's, there's a lot of different applications of technology, you know, across all different types of sectors. And you've got healthcare and supply chain and logistics and energy and agriculture and financial services. And the list goes on and on. It's not just you know pure software plays. It's not just AI. It's not just you know web you know web three point oh or, or you know, you know, digital assets. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of forget that. In my view, the best investments are those that are actually adding 
efficiencies to existing businesses that are already successful. So you take you know an agriculture company or, or an energy company or a supply chain company, and you give them a technology that's going to add you know, add to their business through margin improvements or some other types of efficiencies. And so you know there's a giant market there for for this for this new tool. Right. And and that's you know that's what we look for because we're not necessarily trying to hit you know, a grand slam. We just need to finish the race, like I was saying before, right? You know, we we just need the horse to not die and finish the race, and we're going to be fine. And and I think that the lenders look at things similarly in many respects to the equity investors, but ultimately we're much more risk averse, and we're thinking about protecting against the downside rather than just you know hitting that that one you know, big unicorn. Yeah, and that's why your loan to values are always that small. Yeah, that's where you cap your loan to values at, at the levels that you cap them at. Yeah, I mean, if you're making loans with an LTV of five percent, and you've got covenants, and you're you know the only debt in the capital structure, you've got a lien on all the company's assets, and the company's already done five or six rounds of of equity funding. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very low risk, and the, the loss rates, which which we didn't talk about in this space, are very very low. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, had loan write-offs each year that were on average about 30 basis points. So that's you know, pretty impressive. And in their worst year ever, 2009, they wrote off 2.6% of their loan book, which right. means 97.4% of their loans were still performing, which means they didn't lose money. Right. Right. Very good. Yeah. So um, before we go, Art, just any, any thoughts you want to leave investors with in terms of themes over the next couple of years and, and how to play those themes? Yeah, such a great question. And, and obviously, thematics change on a year-to-year basis. But I think in the long term, you, you highlighted something that I think is very important, right? That I think successful companies or, or success, successful new technologies are going to push productivity. Productivity, whatever, whatever sector you're in. So whatever's going to, if it's going to make us more productive at re- removing hydrocarbons from the ground and getting them to the end user. And, and we've gotten much better at that. We likely have more to go. Things that make us more productive in our workplace and artificial intelligence will, will play a piece of that. But I think there's going to be a lot of other things that come along. So I think when, when you think about investing, you don't necessarily have to discover the new thing. But if, when you think about the themes that likely drive us, it's going to be companies that likely make us efficient, more productive, and likely those companies, therefore, will be very profitable. I think that other major things we should think about is we are actually the lessons we learned from the pandemic are going to help us. And, and the biggest lesson that we learned is we can't be overly dependent on supply chains that can be disrupted easily. Right. The good news is for changing that it's going to take some time. But I think one of the biggest things is that we're either nearshoring or onshoring um, our important supply chains, things like semiconductors. And I think that's going to play a big role over the next couple of years when you think about that. And how do you want to play that? Well, it's not going to be just the companies that are doing the investing in the new fabs for for the um, production of semiconductors in the United States. It's going to be for the machines that actually make those. So when you think about the cyclicality of what we're doing now, we've got a big infrastructure build out. It's going to take eight years to put that money to work. What companies should we think about that's going to be important in that infrastructure? It's not just roads and bridges. It's things like our electric grid. So I think the thematics play out to how are we improving ourselves as a nation? We're fixing our supply chains, we're fixing our infrastructure. And what are the sectors that play into that over the course of the next two to five years? It's going to be a very exciting time to be around. 
Yeah, I agree. I actually really like the theme of, of onshoring. I think we need to do that. Um, you know, there's so many reasons for it. Uh, obviously, the supply chain is <laughs> the global supply chain is a mess. Uh, we learned that quite clearly, and it still is a mess, which means there's a huge opportunity, right? Right. Um, yeah, but also from an economic perspective, personally, I think we we need to bring more of those jobs back to the U.S. I think that there's you know a real problem with the shrinking middle class here, and that and you know, with AI also going to displace jobs, a lot of white collar jobs as as well as as blue collar jobs. There's there's gonna we're gonna need to we're gonna need to create some jobs for people, you know, and and having more jobs here based in the U.S. is is going to be critically important, I think, to our long term success as a country. You know, so, I'm I'm excited about just bringing bringing more jobs back to America, um, but also you know really focusing on making America the the innovation leader in in every single vertical right we're kind of in a, a a battle if you will or a war with china right now to see who's going to be the leader in ai and that will have major implications but we're really we're really fighting on all innovation fronts right we want to be the leader in all of those and to do that we need to bring resources here 100 percent we agree with you more yeah so art thanks so much for joining today it's been great having you and um for anybody that wants to reach out to you what's the best way to contact you yeah, so you can just contact me if uh, if you actually have a sales rep at uh, B. Riley. Please feel free to uh, look out that way. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, so you can find me in both those locations. And uh, love to talk to anybody if you want to follow up in this conversation. Excellent. Thanks, everybody, for listening to The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison. And thanks again, Art, for joining. And we'll see you all next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison. We're glad you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights that you can use to grow your investment returns. Stay connected with us and access previous episodes of The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison by visiting our website at www.7and7show.com or connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at 7 and 7 Show. Learn more about ARI's Venture Debt Opportunities Fund and sign up for ARI's newsletter, Uncommon Sense, at www.arivc.com. For investor inquiries, please contact ARI's team at ir at arivc.com. Thank you for your continued support. Until next time, keep learning and growing.